This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. Right at the top, but that's where you All right, everybody. Banks, big banks continue to be in focus. We got uh, results, earnings results from a bunch last week, and it continues on this Monday. In fact, after a 1.5% rally earlier today, shares of Bank of America right now trading slightly lower after the bank reported record first quarter profits helped by cost cutting. Let's dig through the quarter because investors and analysts both kind of seeing the results as uh, somewhat lukewarm. Marty Mosby is director of bank and equity strategies at Vining Sparks. Joining us on the phone uh, from Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, Marty, good to have you here with us. So when Bank of America first came out, you thought, what about the results? Because I know I was listening in and I thought, okay, this stock's going to have a bit of a rally today. Not so much. Actually, it's up, I should say, it's up nine-tenths of a percent, but it's been bouncing around today. It has been. But um, what we're seeing is that the underlying fundamentals, uh, just like what you said, off the cover look really well. Uh, they're getting, you know, what you're looking at operating leverage. Uh, they're, you know, not getting stellar loan growth, but yet they're still kind of pushing. At least their core business uh, loan growth was up, uh, you know, 5 6% over last year. So we are seeing core business, and we're seeing revenues, uh, which is, you know, favorable for these money center banks that haven't been able to do that much over the last year. I mean, they're still doing a big chunk of business, right? They are, and they're seeing their, you know, community bank do well with, you know, deposits continuing to move up, loans moving up. So, you know, we're not seeing any pressures from the operating environment. And generally, we're seeing expansion in margins, but sometimes the noise will create in, the, in a given quarter, uh, you won't see as much expansion as you might expect. And that was the other thing that kind of kind of jumped in on this one that's really more cosmetic than it is fundamental. I guess what's I got us scratching our heads a little bit, Marty, is that I think we thought as rates were going up, right, this is what banks have been saying has been holding them back, right, in terms of the difference between what they can loan at and what they can make on deposits. And and so here we are in a moving and higher rate environment. Maybe we expected things to be better. Well, actually, we're seeing returns, you know, move up. Over the last year, you see the return on tangible common equity for Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, even Citigroup are up, you know, three to four percentage points. And more than half of that is related to, you know, rising interest rates. Mm-hmm. So we are seeing the benefit that we should expect to see. It does take longer. It doesn't just instantaneously jump off the page. But we will begin to see, as we go through the rest of this year, asset yields starting to move higher. For the first time in 10 years, current market rates are higher than what the rates are uh, you know, for loans and securities on their balance sheets. So we can start to see asset yields finally getting some, some traction to this higher interest rate environment. All right. So, you know, net-net, and of course we still have, what, Goldman and Morgan Stanley – Uh, to report this week, but we've heard from J.P. Morgan, we've heard from Citigroup. Um, What's your overall take on the banks, the big banks? Do you feel like that they're doing fairly well and will continue to do well in 2018? Do you recommend that investors own them? Well, we have, and 
what we always do through earnings season is we start off with the money center banks mm-hmm. that have very complex balance sheets and business mixes. Uh, we'll roll now into the super regional banks to get the most traction from higher interest rates, uh, get you know the ability to see these low credit costs help them out, and they're generating some you know operating leverage as well. So those are the things that we do think uh, wouldn't make it a favorable investment, and the capital deployment that we get in June uh, from the CCAR results will favor the super regional banks as well. Hey, so let me ask you, because I'm looking at some of your ratings, uh, Marty, on the big banks, and you've got a market outperform on Citi, you've got a market outperform on Bank of America, you've got market outperform on PNC, JP Morgan, mm-hmm. strong buys, though, on Wells Fargo and First Horizon. Um, why, why the outperformance there, in your view? Well, we have two uh, story stocks there, uh, Wells Fargo with the reputational issues, and we think that's really going to percolate. That rating is over the next 12 months. Mm -hmm. So we think that Wells Fargo is really kind of going into 2019. First Horizon is all about the you know acquisition that they've just made, and the market you know penalized Huntington and Key Corp, and then you saw the returns go up, and eventually they moved back into the stocks. Same with First Horizon there, but we would see a couple other super regional banks that we would say have more upside in the short run that we also have strong buys on. That would be SunTrust and uh, Citizens Financial Group. What about Goldman and uh, Morgan yet to report? What are your expectations? We'll see those over the- yeah. Right. We'll see those over the next uh, two days. Uh, We do think that, you know, given the recent pullback, uh, that these both, you know, have some upside potential. But we think with what Morgan Stanley has done in their business mix and what they're leveraging on the deposit side uh, with higher interest rates gives them a little bit more momentum. So we'd favor Morgan Stanley over Goldman Sachs at this point. Do our what we are what we're getting from the banks though, Marty? Tell you anything about kind of the overall market environment for banks and what it tells us about the economy? Just got about twenty five seconds here. Well, loan growth is the big key there, and we're not seeing a lot of loan growth on the balance sheet, but pipelines are growing, and we've had a lot of positive foreshadowing going into the second half of the year. So we do think that the economy will reflect that, and the bank loan growth will you know, show that there is some steam uh, momentum going on there in the U.S. economy. All right, breaking down the earnings at Bank of America and really taking a look at those big banks overall. Marty Mosby, thank you, Director of Bank and Equity Strategies at Vining Sparks on the phone from Memphis, Tennessee. As I mentioned, Bank of America all over the map. They've been down a percent, but right now they are up one full percentage point. You're listening to Bloomberg Radio. recently put out a report that noted referencing some research that suggests as many as 30% of prescriptions are never filled. And for patients with chronic diseases, well, check this out, as many as 50% of them stop taking their medications within the first year. So what if drug makers focused more on patient adherence? And that's something our next guest and his company have been working on. Tom Kotler is with us, CEO at HealthPrize Technologies based in Norwalk, Connecticut, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio on this Monday. Welcome. Thank you, man. Thanks for having me. Tell me a little bit about what you guys do specifically your company? Because it's kind of, I feel like, a little bit of disruption in terms of helping patients maybe in companies, uh, but getting patients to maybe take their medications. Yeah, so so we, we have a digital platform that uses ideas from gamification, behavioral economics, and proven concepts from consumer marketing like loyalty programs right. to get patients to engage with their therapy and get educated about the reasons they should stay on therapy. Medication non-adherence is a thing a lot of people don't know about. I've never, I don't think I've ever heard the terminology. It is the biggest problem in all 
all of healthcare, actually. Uh, it's responsible for $290 billion of otherwise avoidable medical spending each year in the United States. It's the sixth leading cause of death in the United States, responsible for almost half of nursing home and ER uh, admissions from elderly. It is just a huge, huge, huge societal problem. But for the pharmaceutical industry, it is their single biggest business problem. Okay. So the premise here is, and you sent over, you shared with us some some research out by Credit Suisse, uh, and also Capgemini did some research. So if indeed you could improve medical adherence, this could be potentially a big boost and big boon, if you will, to the big pharma, right? In terms huge, of use. Huge. Huge. Uh, immense. In fact, um, according to Capgemini, uh, pharmaceutical companies lose $637 billion each year from patients who don't stay on prescribed medications for the treatment of chronic ther- chronic conditions. So you know, there is no other industry in the world that has a $637 billion annual last mile problem and is not throwing everything they have at, at recouping that revenue. And that's a big deal. If you take like a company like Pfizer, their annual revenues are roughly about $50 billion, $52 billion. And you're talking about six over $600 billion. So that's... We're talking t- about a lot of business. Just their percentage of the global market and t- yeah. their percentage of that 637, it's a huge number. So, Tom, where do you guys come in? Tell me exactly how it works. So let's say I've got a relative or myself, and and it, tell me what happens. So we, Break at HealthPrize, we build uh, digital platforms for pharmaceutical brands to engage their patients in their therapy. So we, uh, we, we do lots of things that are fun and interesting. We do sweepstakes and leaderboards and competitions and So if you uh, take your medications for a day, you get points or something. We, you get points for doing things around your medication right. and getting educated about why it's important to stay on therapy. And then we measure people's levels of engagement and how often they stay on therapy. Who's your audience, though? Because I'm thinking if I had a grandmother who was 80 years mm-hmm. old, you know, giving her an app, it's not going to happen, is my So, so that's, that's actually an interesting <laughs> fallacy. Um, the, we've done programs with the average age as high as 72. Right. Uh, and that's still young. Uh, well, that's the average age, which okay. means we had people in okay. their 80s. Okay. Um, the the biggest uh, group for online gaming is actually women 45 to 60, and the fastest growing group of Americans that are texting frequently are people over the age of 65. So I think some of these old notions that people don't engage with things isn't true anymore. Most of these devices have been consumerized. They're pretty easy to use. Right. Um, that's how you stay in touch with your grandkids and your grown children if you're over the age of 75. All right. So you have this platform – how effective is it in terms of really getting people to adhere to whatever the medication is that they've been prescribed and, and Our taking? Our average like lift in adherence to? on a 12-month basis is 52%. Average lift. So that means what? means if you if the average person take, fills four times in 12 months, we get them to fill six times. Okay. So 50% lift in adherence is quite significant. The next thing we're working on in partnership with um, some health plans and pharmaceutical companies is proving that our lifts in adherence actually generate better outcomes and reduce cost. So that's the next stage of our development. I would hope that that would be one of the priorities. <laughs> You'd expect that would be the case, but Forgive we'll find me. out. Forgive me. I'm happy to, you know, Indeed. drug companies increase their business, but I would hope that it would help make people healthier. <laughs> well, that's the whole point. And I think at the end of the day, the reason pharma really needs to pay attention to this, um, in a value-based world yeah. where they're only getting paid on outcomes, the only way to get a better outcome with a drug is to get people to take it. Well, this whole idea of kind of, you know, rethinking how we think about healthcare uh, and medicine in terms of staying well, I mean, that sounds like this could be a big part of it. A huge part of it. And people that are adherent to their medication tend to do other 
healthy things, right? They have other healthy habits, or we can get them to adopt healthy habits if we start with their medication. So how do you make money? Just got about 30 seconds. So somebody, a big drug company mm-hmm. uses your platform. Are you getting a piece of every game that's going on? Like, how does it work? We get paid, uh, we sell software platforms. So we get paid for the platform and then for a per user fee. Got it. Um, our lifts and adherence are significant enough that we'd actually like to go at, at risk uh, be part be part of the solution. Tom, just quickly, is it just about pharmaceuticals or could you apply it to physical therapy? Could you do all these different, the acupuncture treatments? Could you do all things? Could apply it to anything. I mean, uh, at the end of the day, um, p- people don't take care of themselves for lots of reasons, but they tend to end up being psychological at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, everybody knows they're not supposed to drink, uh, not supposed to smoke, um, and supposed to work out, but not enough of us do. So finding ways to prompt people to do the healthy things they should do, um, this could do that for them as well. So you might expand. We are certainly in the process of thinking about that. (laughs) By the way, one glass of red wine occasionally is okay. I hear that's fine, yes. (laughs) Tom, thank you. Nice to talk with you, Tom. Thanks so much. Cutler, he's Chief Executive Officer at Health Prize Technologies based in Norwalk, Connecticut. Certainly does. Uh, I want to bring in our next guest. He's a guest. He is Ed Keon, Chief Investment Strategist at QMA, Quantitative Management Associates. It's the quantitative equity and multi-asset business of PGM. by the way, it's got about uh, $137.5 billion in assets under management, based in Newark, New Jersey, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Nice to have you here with us. That's great to be here, Carol. I asked you initially, because you guys are based in Newark, how Newark is doing. I think Newark's doing well. Uh, and, and Prudential, I think, has played a big role in that. We just built a big new tower there and, and are very committed to the long-term success of the city. When you look at kind of, you know, you guys have to, you know, you're working with people all over the globe and stuff. Um, when you look at kind of the global economy and global marketplace, what does it look like to you? I think it looks pretty good. Uh, I think not just the U.S. economy, but uh, most of Europe is doing quite well. Japan is actually in recovery. So I think overall, we're still in a global synchronized recovery. There may be some data that's been a tad soft recently. Right. But the, the basic uh, situation around the world is that the economies are still growing. That's interesting. So then in terms of market momentum, and I, you know, I always feel like we say markets and you know, pick your markets because there's a lot of ways of describing it. But momentum could continue. You expect kind of new more, or more new money to kind of keep coming into the financial markets. Sure. There's a lot of reasons for caution, as there always are in geopolitics particularly. But I still think that uh, the number one story when this year is written overall is going to be the growth of earnings. And I think especially in the U.S. because of the new tax law, earnings growth is going to be very strong, around 20 percent. And uh, that will carry the markets forward, even though there's worries about relationship with China and the Middle East and Korea and many other places. You're not worried about that yet. Well, that, that we always worried about that. <laughs> well, you know what I mean, but you're not starting to say, okay, well, this has got to, we've got to adapt strategies because it's becoming more than just talk and it's becoming a reality. Well, I actually think China is perhaps the most interesting of those stories over the course of the year because I think there's a, a growing sense that although uh, people may disagree about the tactics, that it's important for the West to take a tougher stand towards China when it comes to intellectual property rights and, uh, and other issues than they have historically. And I think if you if you uh, read some of the, the, the more thoughtful people about China, that sense is becoming widespread. I totally agree. I feel like everybody I've had come on say, we don't disagree necessarily with the president and his team pushing back on China on some issues, such as intellectual property and, and you know, more of a back and forth when it comes to trade policy. They don't necessarily agree 
agree with his tactics. But it's about time that, you know, China wants to be on the global stage. They have to play by all the rules that come with that. That's right. And I think that's why that story is going to be with us for quite some time, probably years into the future. Now, will it be hot sometimes and cold other times? Will it really bother markets for a period and then have that go in the backseat? Yes. Uh, but it's something I think it's reasonable to have kind of a China risk premium built into stock prices that maybe wasn't necessary a year or two ago. You talked about earnings specifically earlier. And, you know, we've often had the conversation, too, that, yep, earnings look you know pretty impressive in terms of growth on both the top and the bottom line. Uh, but you can also see all of a sudden earnings dis- despite upbeat forecasts, can change dramatically. So is it a year from now when maybe, you know, the repatriation, the tax consequences aren't being aren't such a big factor anymore? Is that when things start to maybe temper back a little bit? Well, you're going to obviously get a, a one-time kind of, I'm not sure exactly how big it is, right. maybe 7 maybe 8% or so out of that 20 is just simply due to the tax law. So everything else being equal, you're going to kind of drop that out next year, which will make the year-over-year comparisons very difficult. Right. So the math suggests you're going to get a big slowdown next year. But the question will be, when you filter out the one-time effect, how much growth remains, how much strength remains in a corporate sector? And, of course, we don't know. We've got a long way to go before we get to 2019. But my sense is we still got a, a pretty strong underlying growth. And although it will not continue forever, and there will eventually be another downturn, my guess is it's not for at least a year or, or longer. Does the Fed mess up? Well, uh, I Might hope not. <laughs> well, because this is, a, this is a tricky time in the cycle, right? That's right. In the monetary policy well, cycle. Well, so it's not just a tricky time in the cycle. It's a tricky time in the history of central banking. Right. You know, interest rates got to zero or even in some cases below zero. It's never happened before in 500 years' worth of data that we have on central bank There's policy. nothing in the history books to help us out right. here. There's no game plan that's based on history. So you're trying to go from you know, the lowest level ever to normal. You don't know exactly what normal is, although John Williams, the new head of the New York Fed, has written many papers about the concept of what's the normal rate of interest rate. Yeah. And so... The Fed says they want to get over 3% uh, over you know the course of the next few years. I, I don't think they're going to be able to get that far, in my personal opinion, without significant consequences to markets and the economy. I think the normal rate of interest probably has a two-handle. Right. But we'll see. The Fed has announced that they're going to go slowly. But again, unprecedented situation, the chance of a mistake are probably greater than normal. Has anything changed? I mean, a lot of things have changed since the financial crisis. But when you look at the financial markets and how they work, the increase of computers, the increase of algorithms and, and different factors, you know, is our market different than it was dramatically 10 years ago? Is the well, investment market You different? know, in some ways, the market is constantly changing. I mean, think about how quick and easy it is to trade now right. compared to 10 or 20 or 30 or 40, 50 years ago. Uh, so there's always some change. But at the same time, it's still the fundamental things apply as time goes by. It's still about what earnings are. It's still about uh, what the proper discount rate is. It's still about the risks that you see around the world. So in many ways, although the mechanics of markets are different, as quants, uh, we have to always be on the lookout for new data and new ways of interpreting that data, using that data in the context of the quantitative tools we use. But at the same time, the underlying you know, it's earnings growth and discount rates and price earnings ratio and price to book ratio, all of that is still pertains very much in financial markets. I mean, you've been following the financial markets for a long time. I mean, what do you think about, though, the increase in quant? I mean, I know this is what you guys do. Has it made it much more efficient markets? Well, in some ways, uh, the most efficient product that's been in 
invented is the index fund. Right. It's allowed everybody to get access to the market. It's been around there for a cheaply. long time, if you think about it. If you yeah, go back and it to just Vanguard. keeps growing and growing. And so right. it's it's that's in some ways been a, a great innovation. Maybe the number one innovation in the history of quantitative research is the creation of the index fund. But we still think that there is room for quants who are clever about it to add value on top of a passive vehicle. And that's what we spent our time trying to figure out how to do is to what are the, the techniques we can use to stay ahead of other investors and add value. Got to be quick, 20 seconds. Have you found that in this volatility you guys are able to do that, to beat kind of the overall market? You know, if you look at how we've traded so far this year, it really hasn't changed that much. We're yeah. not trying to catch mm. every little up and down. Yeah. Uh, and um, – we're just trying to add value consistently over time. So we have not been making big portfolio moves at any point during the course of this year. Small changes here and there, granted. Right. But uh, on balance, we've pretty much stayed the course. Nice to have you here. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, Ed Keon, Chief Investment Strategist at QMA, Quantitative Management Associates. They are a division, a business of PGM, based in Newark, in our New York studio. This is Bloomberg Radio. Money changes a lot of different things. Uh, it also leads us to our chart of the day and our Bloomberg Stocks columnist, Dave Wilson. And you're talking about money and companies. Companies have a lot of money on hand right now, Dave, don't they? Exactly. I mean, that's the focus of uh, Dubravko Lakos, who's a strategist over at J.P. Morgan Chase. He pointed us out in a report the other day, just looking at uh, cash and securities at S&P 500 companies. Now, you know, a lot of times people kind of refer to this overall figure as just cash. You know, when you hear these numbers for Apple, for example, I mean, it includes not just sort of money sitting around in the bank, but also uh, in investments that uh, the company has made to try and earn some money on that cash. So, you know, you put that all together. And at the end of last year, you were at about, for the S&P 500, $2.4 trillion. And uh, we've seen the number move up over the last four years. The chart actually goes back to 2010, shows there was a bit of a dip in 2014, and then has been building from there. And why does this matter? Well, uh, the report points out, you know, you've got companies in a position, especially with interest rates going up, that, you know, they can still go ahead and do something with all this money, like, uh, say, increase dividends or uh, buy back shares or go ahead and, and buy other companies. So, you know, and as uh, the report put it, no other time in history have companies held so much cash in a low rate environment. Now, like I said, we know rates are going higher, uh, none, or at least they have in the last few months. You know, nonetheless, this is something, you know, that gets your attention. The idea that companies don't necessarily need all the money that they have sitting around in their accounts or or their investments so that perhaps they can go ahead and, and you know, spend the money uh, – Take advantage of. Hey, is it a lot more than the last time that the companies repatriated money back? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, like I said, the numbers here only go back to 2010. You really have to go okay. back to the mid 1990s or so to see uh, when that happened. So, you know, the comparisons, or at the very least, uh, you know, more than a decade. Uh, right. So, you know, the comparisons don't necessarily line up, but 
as far as this goes, it's enough for him to say that stocks are looking attractive right now. There's plenty of money around and plenty that companies can do with it. If you want to know more, folks, send me an email. I'll get you the chart, the explanation that goes with it, and everything I do going forward. The email address is dwilson at bloomberg.net. That's dwilson at bloomberg.net. All right, Dave Wilson, thank you so much. Our Bloomberg Stocks columnist, Dave Wilson, with his chart of the day. All right, over to Oracle. As I promised, I said I'd we talk about it because the uh, co-CEO, Safra Katz of Oracle, has been talking with the president, uh, and she's been saying, um, well— I'll let, you, I'll let our, our reporter tell you, because she's been talking about the Pentagon's plan for cloud services. Nico Grant is enterprise tech reporter at Bloomberg News. He's in our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. So we know, Nico, that uh, Safra Katz of Oracle, uh, the co-CEO there, has been talking to the president uh, about um, a contract or a potential contract for cloud services for the Pentagon. Get us up to speed about what that's all about and where we are right now. Yeah, thank you, Carol. Mm -hmm. So Safra Katz said in Israel today uh, during a trip there, speaking about some of their investments uh, that are local in that market, that she spoke with President Trump and she said that the Pentagon's cloud contract, as it's laid out, doesn't make any sense. She also said that it, it seemed designed to benefit Amazon and its uh, Amazon Web Services division, which offers cloud computing. And she would like to see a process uh, that allows multiple companies to compete with this, which of course would benefit uh, Oracle, which is not a market leader in the cloud the way that AWS is. So wait, so help me out here. Does AWS, Amazon already have the contract or why are they kind of out there in front when it comes to um, this contract? Has there been bidding? Like how do, you know, what? usually government contracts, there's some bidding that goes on. Right, exactly. So right now the period that we're in is that uh, the defense department is soliciting bids from companies. Uh, that process will formally begin in May, but there's a request for proposal that is out, which lays out these are the requirements you need to meet in order to have a successful bid. The argument uh, that Oracle has, has said, and other companies as well, is that the request for proposal right now seems designed to benefit Amazon, uh, and it, it, you know, certain requirements are requirements that Amazon uh, either may fit uh, best, or mm -hmm. Amazon in some cases might be the only uh, player that meets those requirements. Right yeah. now, Amazon has a uh, cloud contract with the CIA that has been active for the last five years or so. And that's something that's really impressed the top brass at the Pentagon, which has said, well, Amazon has, you know, sort of been trusted to modernize the CIA's infrastructure. So there's, there's a sense among Oracle, among IBM as well, and also Microsoft, Bloomberg News has reported, uh, that Amazon has an unfair advantage. And so this is something that uh, Katz brought up at a dinner, a private dinner with President Trump. Peter Thiel was also at this dinner. And she says that the president tells her that the process will be fair. Interesting. But not unusual maybe for one company to be favored over even in a government contract? Just got about 15 seconds here. Or is it unusual? So it may not necessarily be unusual. I mean, you know, 
the with the defense department there are usual suspects yeah. uh, traditionally but i think there is a sense because there's so much competition in the cloud yeah. none of amazon's rivals want them to win this right. specific one and my gut is if you win the government contract you have it for a long time uh, so talk about you know some visibility in terms of your business nico grant thank you for the update enterprise tech reporter at bloomberg news in our bloomberg 960 studio in san francisco i'm driving in my car I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk the music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody, time for the drive to the close on this first trading day of the week. Uh, we've got Chris Cordero with us. He's chief investment officer at Regent Atlantic. Roughly $3.5 billion in assets under management. Chris joining us on the phone from Morristown, New Jersey. Uh, hi, Chris. Um, another week. We kick it off. We had uh, uh, gains in stocks overall last week. Um, what, what are the things that you're focusing on most? Is it just all about earnings right now? Uh, yes, certainly. Right now, earnings uh, as as the earnings season kicks off, you know, we'll look to see um, if we can continue to grow growing earnings, and if we can, I think that'll continue the market to bode well for the you know for the rest of the year. And that what uh, kind of puts on the shelf for a little while the geopolitical risk concerns that we've had. Yeah, well, I mean, the the, the geopolitical risk they 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 move the market they move the market around on days, but long term, you know, the um, unless we see a, a very big development, I don't see that as uh, as stamping out this bull market. I think what the bull market would likely get um, taken down by is if we see if we see earnings coming um, keep coming in lower, if we see inflation spike, and if we see the economy head to a recession. Um, but the, just the geopolitical concerns, I think, are, are just headlines, and uh, they'll contribute to market volatility. But I don't think that that's enough to um, to end this bull market. All right, but a market hates uncertainty. I mean, are there? Uh, there's a lot of issues out there, right? It can be Syria, it can be trade. I mean, <laughs> you understand my angst here. But I mean. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff out there, and until it becomes real, as my husband reminds me, don't worry about it until it becomes real. You know, like this, just in life in general, right? Um, are there any of those issues, the trade issues? Uh, I don't know. What what is it that you well, think could actually turn out to be something more than just either talk, rhetoric, or back and forth? Well, the the trade in tariffs that's that's the that's the that that above um, Syria or um, or any conflict issues that that's the bigger one that's the bigger one that'll drive things economically. I mean, right now the the trade in tariffs have been more posturing than anything real, and what we've seen is, you know, we've got the we've got the um, you know the U.S. potentially coming back to the table on NAFTA and. Mm-hmm. And maybe striking, uh, you know, a realignment of that agreement, which I think would be a, a big win, um, and would be and would be and would you know and would be a good deal for the markets. It would, uh, you know, just show that 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 trade is important and is good. 
Um, you know, I think uh, too much of what we hear from Washington now is that the trade isn't good, and every every economist in the world then scratches their head and says, "What are we doing?" Right. Even late last week, we had the president, you know, saying that you know maybe there is something there with TPP, which is kind of fascinating considering his pushback uh, while uh, a campaign candidate. Um, let's talk a little bit about specific names because I really like getting down into it because that's you guys are making investment decisions. Um, one um, oak, or is it one okay? Oak. Yeah. yeah. It's, one, it's, one, it's one oak, but it, it, sounds, it looks like it ought to be one okay, right? Right, yeah. Uh, um, OKE is the ticker. Uh, it's had a nice run. It's one of these midstream oil and gas players. Uh, up about 12% so far this year. What is it that you like about it specifically? And the, the the important thing to it, so the, so the midstream oil and gas has been has been beat up uh, the yeah. past couple of years. So there's some great bargains there. It's a, it's an area of the market that's under change, under change from the MLP structure. More and more of them moving like uh, One Oak to a corporate structure, and by moving to the corporate structure, they then open themselves up and they have more institutional ownership, um, and that then gives them that then gives them access to more capital and an increase in price. So you've got a Really great cash flow business uh, that um, that that is very stable, um, and by now moving moving back to a corporate structure and out of an MLP structure, I think you're going to see more um, pipeline companies going towards this. Um, One Oak is just uh, is just ahead of the curve with Kinder, and I think it's just a really undervalued um, and overlooked part of the market. And it's playing into nat gas, right? Which we just you know, while nat gas prices over the last few years have certainly seen uh, been under pressure. Uh, there's more demand going forward. Yes, there's lots more. There's, there's more demand, and you've got you've got developments like First Energy, which is um, you know which is having trouble because they have coal and nuclear uh, powered um, electric generation, and the, the world is moving to gas, and gas is yeah. gas is cleaner, cheaper, and it can be shut down and brought online. So as we add in more renewables, um, which which you know if you get solar, you only get it, you only get it during the daytime. You need um, more gas fired plants that can go on and off the grid quicker. 5.2% um, and, and a 5.2% dividend not too shabby either. No, not at all. And, and I think also you look at market volatility, you want yeah. good values in your portfolio. That helps. Hey, Chris, just got about 40 seconds. I do want to get to Intel because you like this one. Also, it's had a, a pretty good year. It's up almost 14%. What's interesting, though, is we had a big headline earlier this month about Apple, you know, planning to move its, to move from Intel chips to their own Mac chips. Are you worried about some of these changes? Got to be quick, though, about 20 seconds here. No, Apple's only two percent of Intel's revenue, so not a big, not a big driver there. And it's plans that are going to take place in twenty twenty. So yeah. I think you know, that was that was a good, that was a good headline to buy to buy on. And <laughs> and I think that you know Intel is just a great bargain. They've made the transition from being a personal computer based chip right. maker to a server based maker, and the servers are where there's higher higher um, margins, and that's where the world's going. Got to run, Chris. Thank you so much, Chris Cordero, Chief Investment Officer at Regent Atlantic. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.